Welcome to the Book Club interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is Anson Young. He is the owner of Anson Property Group based in Denver, Colorado, which specializes in distressed property purchases. As a full-time real estate investor and agent for the past 10 years, he has completed over 100 wholesale deals and 75 flips. Anson Property Group is committed to changing communities, helping homeowners, and building long-term wealth. When not working, Anson can be found exploring the wilds of Colorado by hiking the Rocky Mountains with his family, reading favorite books to his son, and attending loud rock concerts. So welcome to the show, Anson. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Just uh, glad to have you on. Um, you know, when it comes to real estate, I think you hit the nail on the head with this uh, title. I mean, the book. What's more important than finding and funding real estate deals? Nothing at all, man. If you don't have, <laughs> uh, if you don't have any deals, I mean, what what do you really got? You don't really have much. So, um, it's very important for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So let's uh, jump right into it. So you broke the the book down into eleven chapters. Uh, chapter one explains why you wrote the book and who you wrote the book for. So why did you decide to write a book? So um, this was. I mean, it was kind of a long process, and I know you have. Uh, we we can talk about that a little bit later, but um, it started well before it got. Uh, I think it was like a two-year process, um, which is pretty dang long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in this in this world, I mean, uh, guys like Brandon Turner can can churn out a book in a hundred days, and I I took uh, like four times that amount of time. So, um, but basically, I didn't. I never set out to write a book. I uh, I got approached by um, Bigger Pockets, and um, we were kind of just talking about something else. I think we we're talking about one of Brandon's books, and. Um, Josh or Brandon or somebody said, "Hey, when are you going to write a book on wholesaling or finding deals?" And I was like, "I I really don't have plans to do that. I kind of run a business and um, have a family and everything." And so they said, "Just think about it." And so I thought about it, and I knew I'd kick myself if I didn't uh, take advantage of that opportunity. First of all, and then once I got into the process, I really did enjoy um, the entire process of fleshing it all out, and I actually learned a ton. And I'll even go and reference stuff that I've written um, in the book when it comes to, like, I was writing a driving for dollars manual for somebody who I hired. And you know what? I'd flip to my own <laughs> section of my book and and kind of copied in in some of those sections and uh, and 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 gave him kind of a head start based on knowledge that I threw down in you know two two years ago. So that was kind of the process. And the uh, I think you asked about the audience, like, who's it for? And it's really for beginning um, kind of mid-level real estate investors uh, there's stuff in there for you know veterans I've had some guys go like hey I picked up you know a nugget or two which is what we do too what, what I do when I read a book and I've been doing real estate for a while so when I read it I know a big chunk of it but I don't you know I go through everything and if I pick up one or two little things it's totally worth the time so I, I wrote it for pretty much everybody on the spectrum but it takes you from you know zero knowledge to the closing table. So, you know those those type of people who are interested in that for sure. Definitely. And uh, you start the chapter, you know, explain how you're a treasure hunter, a situation solver, and a master at spying potential. So, which boils down to calling yourself a deal getter guy. So, I love that. <laughs> but a little bit more fancy, like you said, what was it? Um, the acquisitions guy, I think. <laughs> yeah. The, the yeah. Nobody. Um, says like in third grade like I want to be an acquisitions specialist or something <laughs> you know um, so you know kind of boiling it down to 
you know, I'd go out and find deals. My dad's a great deal finder when it comes to cars. Um, I must have picked up on that, and he, you know, he's been doing that for a long time. But he looks at the stuff that I do, and he's, you know, it, it's an economy of scale. So he's blown away by, by it. Even though he picks up, you know, um, VWs and Porsches and stuff and fixes those up, I just have a zero maybe on the end of that and uh, and or two and call it good. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I my dad was uh, in the auto body as well, and I think I learned that creative eye to, he you know take a damaged wreck and see it to the to end product. So, yeah, I'll align with you on that. Yep. So <laughs> let's talk about the uh, three hats you're wearing. So uh, a hat is a wholesaler, a fix and flipper, and a real estate agent. Do you enjoy one more than the other? I do. I mean, um, I mainly use my license for the flipping business. I do occasionally do some stuff here and there for friends and family and, and, and people that I can just quickly, you know, uh, step in and help them out. Um, uh, so that's, you know, I, I'm not aspiring to be a number one retail agent. It's just, I don't have time for that. So I think out of the other two, I definitely enjoy the fix and flip process the most. I, I like the creativity. I like taking a, a crappy property and making it nice. Um, and then having a family move in and they're proud of, you know, the house that they have and, um, you know, changing neighborhoods, you know, have neighbors come up and thank me for buying, you know, that house and turning it around because they've been looking at it for 20 years and they hate it because um, it's in such bad condition. And so to, to, to know that you're kind of making that impact directly is huge. And so um, I'd say that fix and flip hat is probably my favorite for sure. Great. So, you know. Before we jump into the fix and flip and the wholesaling and the more details about finding and funding deals, uh, you jump right into chapter two about market analysis. Um, and you explain that's one of the best places to start and, and how to find Waldo. Uh, so how do we become confident in a certain target area? And why is that important um, that we become an expert in that area as well? Yeah, so um, I know it's a pretty broad broad question. I mean, it depends on what you're trying to do as a real estate investor. Um, if you're kind of a fix and flip guy, you're definitely going to want to find out what section of your market of your city is uh, most conducive to fix and flip. So what are houses selling for as is, and then what are flippers selling them for, and then like what's the difference? Can you make money inside of there? And um, you know, if you're wholesaling, it's a pretty similar process, uh, but that might be like I'm doing market analysis plus talking to a bunch of real estate investors to see what they want to buy and where. And then compile that, say, you know, 10 people want to buy houses in Aurora, Colorado, um, which is a suburb of Denver here. Then I know if I go into Aurora and I can find houses, I at least have like 10 somewhat interested people, that kind of thing. And then if you're uh, a buy and hold person, it changes a little bit because you're not caring as much as the ARV, which is the after repair value. Um, you're more concerned about maybe job growth or stability or um, rental growth, vacancy rates in that city. And so you're going to be looking at different terms, um, you know, different conditions based on what your investment strategy is. And then if you're like a developer or something, that's a totally different thing as well. And so it just depends on what your niche is um, of, of how you're going to analyze it. Um, but it, it talks about it pretty good in the book. Um, break, I try to break it down without making it a whole book on its own because it definitely could be of you know, how to identify, is this a good market to be in for what I want to do? And sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes um, you might come into a hot market, say San Francisco or Denver, uh, Boston or something, and you might realize, man, based on these prices um, of, of purchase price and my marketing budget, 
I probably, you know, I probably have a month or two of marketing here. And then when it comes to purchasing, you know, a 500 to a million dollar property, you know, for a new person, that's going to be like, I, I don't know how to do that. Or I, I, yep. <laughs> it freaks them out, you know? And so, um, so that just that much market analysis might drive them to a secondary or tertiary market in their state where they, their money goes a lot further and where it might be more conducive to, um, their strategy. So mm -hmm. that, that piece is important. And then becoming a master of market knowledge, um, I found that pretty quick because when I lived in Arizona for two years, and that's when I very, very first started investing, you know, I got to know Phoenix pretty good. And then two years later, I moved back to Denver and I felt like I was starting all over. I had to learn areas, neighborhoods, um, you know, what people are putting into their properties, uh, all that stuff. So it's like starting over. But since then, um, you know, we've gone back into the Phoenix market from Denver, like a virtual thing. And, you know, we're wholesaling and flipping houses straight off of you know straight from Denver so you're doing it virtually and it and I and I learned okay um, if you can analyze a market quickly and if you can do it thoroughly you can actually drop into any market across the nation and as long as you know what you're doing you can quickly analyze those numbers figure out where to be and kind of get up and running way faster than if you just let you know, your agent handle marketing or, or uh, market knowledge, or if you let your partner handle market knowledge, um, if, if you know how to analyze all that, you know, you can just, you know, drop me in wherever, um, somewhere in Kansas, and I can probably flip some houses in, you know, within a month or two, just knowing how to analyze all those numbers and how to, you know, uh, manipulate that for my strategy. So it's huge. Yeah. Definitely. No, I love that business system. You said you could, you know, drop me in anywhere if you have the, those sound principles that you talk about. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it's great because you can start over anywhere. And yeah. um, this is a very local business. So like a real estate agent who moves has to get a whole new book of business and everything else. A real estate investor who knows their market or knows how to analyze a market can literally move anywhere and, and get running up and running pretty quick. That's great. Yeah, you you said something interesting um, where you said if you had ten buyers looking in an area, um, you would then go and wholesale. Is that is that a technique you use today, where you know you're working with investors and then you try to find them deals? I don't do I don't I don't do a ton of um, wholesaling these days, just because the market's pretty dang tight here. Yeah. Um, but that is, <clears throat> I guess it's classically referred to as reverse wholesaling. So it's kind of. Um, and like I think in the book I have like a diner analogy. And so instead of making like a, um, you know, a shepherd's pie or something, and then going around to each table and saying, "Hey, you want you want this? You want this? You want this?" And um, that's not how it works in in that world. You know, somebody places their order. They say, "I want fish and chips," or "I want a hamburger," or whatever. And then they go find it. You know, from the kitchen they make it and they take it out there. So for wholesaling, it'd be the same thing. If I talk to twenty investors and 15 of them are investing in a certain zip code those guys I want to talk to and say hey um, what's the last couple of projects that you bought there oh I bought a three-bedroom two-bath um, for hundred thousand dollars and you know I talk to each one of those guys and then I know in that zip code if I find a three-bedroom two-bath you know for around a hundred thousand dollars we're talking I'm pretty dang close to a deal because I know what these guys bought their houses for and so it's like that reverse order, like I'm taking orders and then I'm going to go find the inventory to sell to them um, as opposed to saying like, I'm just going to market everywhere. I hope that somebody wants this house and, 
you know, it's kind of like the shepherd's pie. It's like, you like this? You like this? And yeah. of course, not everybody's looking for that at all the time. So um, by doing it in the reverse, you have a much better chance of taking it to those 15 guys. And they're like, three, two in that area? Perfect. You know, um, and then you can work out numbers from there. But That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, moving on to chapter three, you talked about, you know, reaching the market um, and the many kinds of sellers and many types of properties for sale out there. Uh, you touch on auctions, uh, on market, off market, distressed properties, foreclosures, short sales, you know, REOs. So what's your favorite way to buy real estate and uh, where have you had the most success? Um, so this is, um, this is an interesting topic because the, um, the ways that I got deals five years ago is totally different than the ways I, I got I get them today and I think it's the same for a lot of investors and it's just the way that the market shifts so each year brings it, its own set of challenges whether it's um, you know we started off buying a bunch of REOs um, a bunch of bank foreclosures basically and you can throw a dart at a map and hit a deal and um, there was a huge glut of inventory here in Denver and uh, you know, a huge chunk of those were REOs, and so you could easily go in and swoop in and buy, you know, a handful a week, and be just fine. And then um, the market started uh, correcting and, and going back up, and so um, the foreclosures started going away. But then we still had a lot, you know, we had a lot of short sales on the market, and so those, you know, we shifted from REO to short sale. And then now the market um, has corrected so much where almost nobody is underwater. I mean, um, just for fun, I'd looked for short sales on my MLS system here. There's like three. <laughs> and I don't even know how those three are still underwater of, of any kind. Um, but there used to be, you know, 10 or 50 times that many, you know, um, back in maybe 2013, uh, that kind of time frame. So it just goes to show, like, if, you, if you're just narrow-minded and you're not moving with the market, you can get left behind pretty quick. So then we move to off-market to direct to seller type stuff. And so these days it's um, direct to seller networking and referrals are my three big um, deal finding uh, avenues that, that kind of keep the pipeline going. And, and then who knows what, who knows what next year I'll bring or the next year, yeah. you know, as the market shifts, as uh, marketing methods shift and, and, and stuff like that. So some of that stuff's out of your hand. You just got to pay attention to what's working and what's not and shift. Yeah, no, that, that's amazing. I love how you have that, that repertoire of skills that, and you can move with the market and not, you know, stay stuck in one. Um, and sure. you know, in chapter four, you're talking about networking, uh, and you just mentioned it. So what advice would you give a, a first time real estate or, uh, investor, um, who's looking to network and, and possibly find some deals? So um, I would basically the way that I started off at the very beginning was networking and it was going to every um, REI event that I could go to, um, you know, the, the monthly REI clubs, the, the uh, rich dad, poor dad, cash flow games, um, basically just tried to get in front of and talk to as many people as possible. And I was, I was pretty shameless. I was just like, I'm new. I have no <laughs> clue what I'm doing and I'll do anything for you. Um, if, you know, if you'll teach me some stuff. And so I had two or three people kind of, uh, say yes to that. They're like, sure, you know, go punch, you know, signs in the yard, uh, <laughs> you know, in the middle of summer in Phoenix and exchange, <laughs> uh, 
uh, well, you know, I'll show you the MLS system or I'll show you how to comp a property or I'll show you kind of some of the stuff that my clients are doing. And, you know, I'm very thankful for those opportunities. Um, but, you know, that networking piece of just getting out there, meeting as many people as possible, because you never know who you're going to partner with or, you know, because um, my first deal back in Denver was just like that. It was networking with another agent in my office. We were just out for coffee. And I was like, hey, I have a deal, but I, I actually don't have any money or I don't have a way to get bank financing. And he's like, well, I've been looking to get into this and I have money, but I don't have any deals. And so it's like, <laughs> and so we, we met, you know, in the middle and we, um, and we made uh, good money on that deal. And so it's, it was all from networking. So I'd say go to as many things as possible and then um, say that there's not any events in your area. I would recommend just starting one. Like even though you, you're not the expert, it's not about like you being the guy, you know, you being the expert. Just start like a networking happy hour group where you can maybe attract 10, 20 real estate investors and then like the magic happens right there in that room. And that comes from the experience of starting a, uh, starting a networking group in 2012. And, um, you know, this week was our month, monthly meetup and there was, you know, 70, 80 people there and it just, you know, keeps going every month and pretty soon, you know, you'll meet the right people who will have the right tools. So if you need a contractor, you know, there's 10 people there who use contractors or, you know, financing or insurance or just deals. They're, they're all right there. So if there's not one in your area, start one. And if there's a bunch in your area, you know, there still might be an opportunity to start one and, and kind of have a smaller thing going and something that's pure networking, that's no sales and that attracts people right away. So, yeah, no, that's, that's some amazing advice. And, you know, I, I wish that, you know, if you go back time and you heard that right away and you just applied it, you didn't think about it, you just went. And if you didn't, you know, try to gravitate towards those investors and, you know, give them a place to come to you. So exactly, exactly. You know? Um, now, chapter five, you talk about marketing methods and how you can take two approaches to marketing. So targeted direct and broad direct marketing. Can you explain the uh, both of them to the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this was something that kind of my publishing editor helped me like narrow down of how to how to describe this basically because I, I probably had other terms for it, but um, she kind of helped with this. So the broad direct marketing is um, is like a billboard. So it's, you know, something that you just throw up and you, you know, a, a bunch of people are going to drive by it. So it could be a bandit sign, a uh, billboard, um, some internet marketing methods where it just is like a big blanket that goes over everybody. And you're just hoping to catch the right person at the right time who might be driving down that highway and see your billboard and your message speaks to them and they call you or, you know, driving out of the Walmart parking lot, they see your bandit sign and they call you so that kind of broad you're not targeting anybody you're targeting like everybody um, who would be going by your your marketing piece and the targeted is obviously the opposite of that it says you know I have a list of a thousand names and addresses and I'm targeting those people specifically you know it's Bob Jerry Sue you know and they're at one two three Main Street one two four Elk Street you know like so I'm targeting them specifically based on criteria you know, a bunch of different criteria. Mm -hmm. um, and that way I'm not kind of like spending a bunch of money to, to grab 99.9% .9 of people who don't care about my billboard or my bandit sign. 
now I'm like focusing on these a thousand people who, you know, um, who I know from this criteria need to hear my message and I can help them out. And so that's, that's kind of the difference. You're like, you know, uh, it's like a shotgun versus a rifle. So shotgun is like just blah, like everywhere. The rifle, you're just, you know, there's one hole in the paper when you shoot the target. And, um, that's kind of the difference. So, yeah. So do they both have, you know, success obviously is it, can you put a certain percentage? Do you, you know, love focus on, you know, direct or is, you know, having broad or is it kind of a mixture of the two? So it's funny when you like, when you write a book like this, cause it's, um, you try to like encompass all the different marketing methods. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of broad, uh, direct marketing. So, um, I've never put up bandit signs and I've never had a billboard. Um, I do have some internet stuff, but it's, it is still targeted. It, mm-hmm. I, I, I classify it in the targeted cause I'm targeting those people specifically instead of just like a broad search term or something like that. And so, um, so I find when you're when you're just getting in front of people direct, and you're targeting the people that you need to target, say like uh, people who are in foreclosure, and you have a list of you know 50 names, that that's a targeted list that then you mm-hmm. can just target those 50 people as opposed to like the 5,000 people in that neighborhood. You want the 50 people, you know, and because because you know that you have something that you can help them, and so yeah. that's uh, that that's definitely where I lean, and I know. Mm-hmm. I know guys who put up bandit signs and they do a bunch of deals too. So that's, that's also the problem is that there's a million ways <laughs> to money. And yeah. so I, I'll never say like, Oh, that never works. Cause then I'll meet somebody who's like, that's all I do. And then <laughs> yeah. I feel yep. like an idiot. So <laughs> yeah. no, it's good. It's like you said, just, just having those extra skill sets in, in your, your belt just in case. Exactly. You know? So let's uh, run right into uh, evaluating the deal chapter six. So, this is this is what I struggle with, and I'm sure a bunch of people struggle with. You know, in the beginning is you know the auction setting where you get you don't know, bid and the motions get involved. So how do you stick to your purchase formula and buying criteria so that you don't end up losing money by taking unnecessary risk? Yeah, that's that comes from um, either experience or discipline. So on the experience side, you know you might have wavered from your purchase formula on a deal and then got burned. And so then your experience locks you into, um, like, no, I'm not, I'm not deviating anymore. Um, and then obviously the discipline side says, um, I didn't deviate in the first place and I'm conservative on my numbers. Therefore, yeah, I am going to pass over some deals because they, you know, um, I, I actually learned a really good lesson from, uh, Jay Scott who wrote, um, um, the book on, uh, uh, Jeez, the big flipping stuff, the, houses. Yeah, the book yeah. flipping houses, and um, and then the book on negotiating uh, real estate. Um, that uh, that Jay Scott, and he um, for, for a minute, I was trying to sell him a property in Atlanta, which is his backyard. And I think that the the deal he evaluated it, and he said, I think that this is like um, it's something. It was something like five hundred dollars, or maybe a thousand dollars outside of his purchase formula. And he said no. And he literally just said, like, like, ah, it's no deal, man. And I was like, wait. And, and at the time, I was um, maybe not as disciplined as I am now, but I was like, hey, it's only 500 bucks or 1000 And he And he said something that I'll always stick with is, is like, well, if I, if I bend on a 500 today, you know, and it works out, right? And then the next one comes along, and I'll bend 1000 And the next one comes along, and I'm like, eh, it's only 2500 bucks. 
then the next one comes along and you're like like I can make up that five thousand somewhere else and then so you kind of just keep um, bloating out your formula till mm-hmm. you know you're you're gonna get burned and so I learned a great lesson from him doing that and I've pretty much tried to stick to my numbers one hundred percent and so that was I mean that was a great lesson of just that discipline of like five hundred bucks like no I mean it's either <laughs> it's either in or it's out outside the box I'm not gonna move the box um, yeah. to fit this deal. And so um, um, we ended up not being able to do that deal because I couldn't get the price down. And uh, yeah, it was just one of those things where it was a great lesson to learn. Nobody mm. lost any money or anything, um, but it was uh, you know something that he imparted on me, which was like stick to your guns and just 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 stick to your guns. Like there's, yeah. there's nothing yeah. else you can do. No, that's to learn that lesson you know instead of being burned that's that's amazing i mean because usually it's you know other, other books talk about you know like the slight edge or it's just small steps you know every day and, and if you go in the wrong direction or if you go in the positive direction so exactly um, yeah i'm just going to remember that story from you telling me so <laughs> <laughs> thanks um all right so this, this is a good question chapter seven so financing the deal um, so let's say you have, you know, uh, I think you use an example, 250k liquid in the book. Um, now, would you use all that money for one purchase, and why or why not? I would, um, I would not, honestly. Um, I'm a, I'm somebody who's never had their own money in a deal, um, and so I have 100% leverage uh, when it comes to that. So I can do, you know, I can do as many deals as I can raise money for, or I can mm-hmm. go to banks for, whereas. Uh, Say you ha- say you're just like a guy who has a cash principle who just says I only want to have cash in there. I don't want to leverage anything. You know, you could do one deal at a time, whereas I could do you know potentially hundreds if I have you know the the, the capital backing um, mm-hmm. to lend me the money. And so, um, and 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 let's you know let let's say that you're uh, just doing bank you know, financing and you have to put down 25% and you break up that 250 into five uh, $50,000 down payments. Um, yeah, you're, you're like chunking your money, but you're putting it into five different projects and, and that's leveraging your 250 mm-hmm. to five deals. And if, and if you have to do it that way, that's still better than just doing one deal. Um, yeah, you're saving money on interest, uh, you know, interest and Closing costs and all that stuff, but you're you might be losing out on opportunity as well. Where um, you know five deals should pay out way more than just one, and my hundred deals in that example will pay out you know a hundred times more than that one. So yeah, I, I always recommend you know leveraging if possible, mm-hmm. and um, you know whatever whatever works for that investor's risk tolerance and their business plan, and so. Um, it, it just makes more sense. You can leverage yeah. that more deals. Yeah, no, that's that's a great story on leverage. I love it because um, at first you, you you think of all those you know high you know points and fees and interest, and you're like, what? Why would I waste so much money? But like you said, the the opportunity lost from not having that capital available is is going to cost you in the long run. Yeah, I mean, um, I was sitting down with a uh, business coach, and one of and we have a mutual friend who does development and. This guy had had I think like seventy projects going with all hard money, and um, and and you know I, at the moment I was kind of like, man, development with hard money—that's a different—that's a different game. That's very expensive, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, 
Matt had broke it down and he, and he's, and he basically just said, listen, that's all factored into the end cost. You know, if you make just a slightly smaller margin, but then you can do, you know, again, like 10 times the number of projects, um, it, it makes sense. And so when, and it's the same way when, if somebody has bank financing, they're like, okay, I go to my credit union and I get 5% on my, in my renovation loan. They look at somebody like me who takes a 12% loan and they're like, oh my God, that's, you know, over twice the amount that I pay for interest. And I go, yeah, but I'm only in and out of the project in 90 to 120 days, you know, and mm -hmm. it's like, like you do the math and you go like, I would rather 100% leverage that than have, you know, 25% down and go through the whole, um, uh, qualification process with the bank. You know, I'd rather go to a private lender and just, you know, say, Hey, yeah. lend, lend, lend me money. And so, yeah. um, it, it's just, it's just your, just a difference on, um, their risk tolerance. So definitely. Yeah. And I, I can echo that same thought when, you know, at first there's, you know, you try to get the Fannie and Freddie debt, low interest bank loans, and then all of a sudden, you know, trying to jump from that to private capital is tough. So you, you turn to the hard money because, you know, it's a little bit more of a business and, you know, you can kind of get, in my experience, you know, a quicker loan than you got to, I was building a track record. Um, right. and, and I just factored in the 12% in, in the points and that was that, you know, and yeah. as long as you're still making it, it's, it works. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Um, so, so what's your best creative financing story since we're on the topic? Oh man, this is going to be a huge disappointment. Um, oh. <laughs> because, uh, I honestly, um, I, there's, there's one thing. So since I'm licensed here in Colorado, um, mm -hmm. there's certain, types of creative financing that I can't do or that I've been told that I can't do. Um, so like sub subject to, and, um, kind of like sandwich lease option wraps, uh, just, just like really creative stuff. But I'm, but I'm also a little bit locked in by my license of what I can and can't do. Um, I never want it to look like that. I'm taking advantage of somebody or, um, anything like that. And of course the real estate board doesn't want to see that either. And so, um, all of my deals have honestly been, either uh, partnerships or uh, private money financing. And mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, when it comes to like the, the crazy creative stuff, like some of my friends do, um, I, yeah, I, I feel like I'm just boring because I've just done the same <laughs> thing for a long time. And, um, you know, if, if the right situation comes across and it's something that I can do, I'm not opposed to it. It's yeah. just like, you know, a lot of times I'd just rather close and be done um, some wholesalers bring me deals where it's like, well, if you catch up the first and then you take over the first, and then you pay off the lien and you do this, I just go like, can I just close it and we can just be done? Like, I don't want to have to deal with any of that stuff. Um, but uh, there's there's a lot of validity and a lot of uh, success with the creative, but um, I'm honestly I haven't jumped in yeah. there yet. So well, keep right. it simple. No, no, it's good. I love it. Uh, since we're on the topic, negotiation, chapter eight. So the, the fear of rejection, um, and you say you go out in the world and, and get 10 no's as fast as possible. So how will this help um, with our ultimate goals? So I think um, I think most people just have this aversion to um, the, like conflict, minor conflict, or obviously serious conflict. But, you know, if, if you go to... Best Buy and you're looking at a TV, you know, nine out of 10 people aren't going to be like, Hey, do you, you know, can you, can you cut me a break for like 50 bucks or something? And sometimes they have the power to do that. And sometimes they don't, um, you never know until you ask, but if you, 
you know, if you're afraid to even ask the question because you're going to get told no, or you're going to feel like you're going to be embarrassed, or, um, you know, obviously in the real estate world, this is, um, you know, out of 20 calls, I might go on, you know, one or two appointments. And so I'm hearing a lot of no's, like, no, I'm not interested, or no, I don't like your numbers, or no, um, that time frame doesn't work for me, or um, you get rejected a lot. And so once you're once you're over that fear of just that conflict or that, it, I think it's all in your head, that perception of like, oh, this person's going to think differently of me, or um, I'm going to be so embarrassed when I give out my price and they're, they like laugh in my face or something, you know. Um, if you kind of just stick to your guns, um, stick to your price and you, and you can get, you know, to know as quickly as possible, then that next 10 appointments are going to be so much easier because you go, oh, it wasn't the end of the world when they told me no, or they laughed in my face or, <laughs> or they, you know, like it wasn't nearly as embarrassing as I thought. And then you learn other coping mechanisms to get around or maybe around that no, or you, or you learn on your skills how to build like, oh no, that doesn't work for you. Well, maybe there's something else that we can work out that does. And then you kind of work, you know, you learn to work, you know, within that no. And yeah. um, so it's hugely important. Just get that rejection out of the way. So then you can just go, go to your next 10 appointments a little bit more fearless. So you're not worried about looking embarrassed or looking dumb by somebody not liking your price or not yeah. liking the way you dress or whatever it is. Um, just get there and then you can, you rocket past it faster. Smart. Well said. So chapter nine, let's say we get one yes and, and we go to lock it up. So uh, let's explore the elements of a legally binding and valid contract. So we have the offer, the acceptance, the consideration, uh, the obligation, uh, competency and capacity and written instrument. So um, in terms of, you know, offers, um, you know, is that something that you have uh kind of streamlined over the years when you know you're working with fix and flip or wholesaling um i i'd say yes um there is um there is of, of course there's that piece of of you know the the offer is kind of touching back on negotiation that's the like who's who's naming their price first and you know who's who's coming out of the gate and and, and they, like the first one who throws down a number um is the boldest and they usually lose honestly just because they uh, now everything is anchored to that price so if you know if if i throw out hey i'm you know i'm thinking about 150,000 but in their mind they were like 250 or 200 or 225 or 175 or if if let's just say they were like i was happy with 100 you know <laughs> I'll, I'll take yeah. an extra grand like sweet. Yeah. so the yeah. first person they kind of um, drop that anchor um, now the entire negotiation is going to circle that anchor, um, and it's not going to go, you know, too far outside of there. And so, um, so, so that offer piece is something um, that uh, a lot of times you have kind of a verbal back and forth where you're like, so what's kind of your ballpark that you're looking to get? And they might say, well, you know, hundred, um, you know, I, I'd like hundred and fifty, and. And if that works, and then I think that that offer in this context of this chapter would be like getting it down on paper, mm -hmm. um, getting it down to where you, if, if you have like a verbal ballpark where you're like, okay, you're thinking 150, I'm, I'm thinking like 130, maybe we can meet in the middle at 140. And they're like, well, okay, that sounds good. And then you can kind of like write down your offer. So then um, 
then you're kind of anchoring it there. And if it moves, it's not going to move up to like 175, you know, or um, you're probably not going to talk it down to like 75,000. So, um, so that, that piece is important of kind of mutually getting what you agree to down on paper. Um, and sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it is a shot in the dark where they're like, just, you know, no matter what I do, I can't get them to tell me a number. They're like, just shoot me a contract. <laughs> and then it's like, <laughs> well, here we go. And, uh, and that, that, that's also this offer piece where I can, you know, shoot them over contracts, explain, you know, what I have in there and just say, Hey, this is my price and I'm shooting in the dark. So here we go. So that, that's kind of that offer piece. Oh, that's great. So, you know, once you, you come to an agreement and, and both parties agree, um, so what are some good tips to keep a deal together and bring it to close? Um, <clears throat> definitely communication, I think, is number one, especially with off-market sellers. Um, these are people who most likely, I think the average, you know, the average American moves every eight years or something like that or keeps their house for only eight years. And on the... Um, on the long end of that would be a lot of the sellers that I work with who have lived in their house for 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. So they've bought and sold a house like once or twice mm. in their life. And, and then on the short end of the spectrum is somebody like me. I might buy, you know, five houses a month. You know, that, that's a huge difference to go from <laughs> five a month to like two in their life. And so to them, this is a crazy, life-changing, just huge process to get their brain around and um, and they're looking to you as the expert if you're doing five a month you should be the expert and you should um, you should be able to communicate each step of the pro or of the contract as it goes along and so that communication piece of holding it together I find like um, with a lot of investors that I know their stuff blows up because you know somebody wasn't talking to somebody else or somebody wasn't picking up the phone or you know, somebody went to um, Mexico for two weeks and didn't return phone calls and the seller, you know, just drops drops them because they feel like they have no confidence in this investor because of communication there. And so that that's kind of the biggest piece. So that could be like setting up, um, hey, um, you know, we're under contract now. And as we discussed before, you know, I'm going to send my sewer guy in there to make sure that the sewer line's not all busted. And, um, you know, if it is for some reason, we might be able to come to an agreement um, because that's, you know, that's different than what we talked about. So that's kind of a, a forward communication piece. And then when it comes to, you know, let's say my guy goes out there and it is busted, I'm not calling him out of the blue and just being like, hey, I need $10,000 off the price because the sewer is busted. I can then refer to that earlier communication where I said, hey, um, <clears throat> remember how I said that if, you know, the sewer is messed up? Well, unfortunately it is. Here's the video. Here's the report. Here's what my, uh, my licensed guy says. And so that communication, like, <clears throat> it's important. It, it continues mm -hmm. the rapport that you built to get the deal, and it continues all the way to closing. I'd, I'd love to have every single one of my, my sellers be just as happy with the process from beginning to end and, um, and still recommend me to people that they know who might be in a similar situation and be so happy that it was taken care of from A to Z and that we communicated the, the entire way through. And that's... That that's kind of what holds that glue together is continuing that rapport through communication. I love how you're thinking of the sellers in mind and, and trying to you know have them as as comfortable as you are and you know to have both parties you know walk away with something positive. I think that's huge. I think you have to. I I yeah. think that in a competitive market, you're setting yourself apart by having 
um, this word that just doesn't exist in real estate, which is, well, in real estate investing, which is customer service. You know, it's like these people aren't just like a commodity. You know, this is like something that they lived in for 30 years. It's a huge deal. And if and the more that you can hold hold their hand and communicate and, you know, have this compassion of like, hey, we're helping, you know, we want this to be a win-win, they can exit the whole process and give you, you know, glowing reviews or video testimony or, or even if there is no payoff at the end, at least you know that, you know, they said thank you at the closing table and that's, you know, that that's part of the deal of setting yourself apart from your competition. Yeah. It's actually caring about these people. So Yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. Now, uh, chapter 11, so how to build a business around finding deals. Um, you know, in terms of our goals, you know, can you explain how uh, you start with the big picture and how you reverse engineer to the present? Yeah, for sure. So um, this is something that I like kind of really, really wanted to, to keep in the book. And um, it was in danger of being axed at one point because um, yeah. it was like, it was like, hey, this is like finding and funding deals. Who cares what they do after, you know, you got them to the closing table. And part of me was like, well, I'm not doing them a good service unless I can expand like, okay, you got that first deal. Now what? Like, can you go get, make that the two, the three, the 10, the 20, whatever that is. And so um, the, the, this kind of reverse engineering concept's not new, but it's basically saying like, okay, so Scott wants to make um, $100,000 a year wholesaling, right? And so um, it, it, it's kind of a long you know, formula, but we'll, we'll, we'll try to simplify it here. But So Scott has a goal. He wants to do $100,000 in wholesaling. He needs to figure out how many deals or like how many deals at the average price is he going to have to sell in order to hit that $100,000. So let's say each average wholesale deal is $5,000 in, in, in your market. So you say, okay, I need 20 deals to hit my $100,000. That's uh, 20 deals at $5,000 a piece to hit $100,000. That's pretty simple, right? And then you back up and you say, okay, um, how do I get 20 deals? <laughs> like <laughs> how much, you know, how much mail? Like this, this does really refer to direct mail because it is a little bit more mathematical. Mm. Um, uh, doing kind of referrals and networking and some online stuff that you don't have the numbers for might be a little bit harder to do, but we'll just keep it in the context of direct mail for right now. Um, so you say, okay, I, I need to, I need to hit 20 deals. How am I going to get those 20 deals? And then you have to break it down. Okay. How many letters am I going to have to send to actually get these 20 deals? And so you can break that into, um, when you send a letter, you have what's called a response rate. So you might send a hundred letters and you'll get, um, so at a 10% response rate, you get 10 calls, right? Um, out of those 10 calls, not every, like, it'd be very rare if every one of those was just a deal that you picked up. Then you just send 200 letters and you're done with for the year, <laughs> which would be, which would be Three freaking minutes. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you say, okay, out of 10 calls that I get, maybe I get one appointment. And so, um, so out of that one appointment, let's say it takes you, Every four appointments, out of out of every four appointments, you close on one one house, and so you know from there. Okay, so it took me a hundred letters to get one appointment. So if I if I mail out four hundred letters, I should get those four appointments, and I should get one deal based on the you know based on the numbers here. And uh, of course, this will change for every investor based on your response rate, how good you are at converting, etc. So. Mm -hmm. um, 
So in this very simple world, you would say 400 letters to get one deal, right? Now we have to pull out a calculator, but I think it's going to be um, 400, and we'll just do it times 20, because you did 400 letters to get one deal. You want 20 deals. So you're gonna have to send out 8,000 letters over the course of a year to get your 20 deals to make your $100,000. And so it, it's a pretty good way of, I mean, and you can scale that. You're like, I wanna make a million dollars. What'll that look like? And if you know kind of your response rate, your conversion rate, um, you should be able to back into, okay, what action am I gonna have to take to hit my goal? And, um, and so you start with the goal and then you back it out to how much action you have to take. You know, an 8,000 letters is, you know, you'd have to send 666 letters a month to hit your goal. And if, if all those numbers are correct. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really a good way to, to kind of figure out how much action you're going to have to take based on what you want your goal to be. Yeah. I love how you, you can quantify it because success is so much simpler at that point. It's, you know, at the end of the month, you can ask yourself, hey, did you send out those 600 and some odd letters? And it's right. yes or no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, that seems very like cold and sterile and um, mathematical, like insert 400 letters, get, you know, $5,000. Um, it's not always that smooth because um, mm. you might go one month, you know, two months with zero deals and then, you know, two months that you pick up like, you know, eight or something. So way above average. And so it's just a, it, it's, it's generally pretty precise, but, um, but it's still a numbers game. I mean, you yeah. could hit zero, yeah. zero deals at the end of the year, even if you did all the right efforts, it's just, um, it's unlikely, but it's possible. Yeah. No, definitely. <laughs> now, uh, talking about scaling up. Um, so what are some of your favorite, uh, you know, business systems that you use like a CRM or a deal repair analysis? Yeah. So I use, uh, for CRM, I'm using Podio. Mm -hmm. Um, I've built, I've tried to build a couple custom things inside Podio. Um, I think everybody, um, does this at some point when they pick up Podio, it's just like this big sandbox. Um, and then they have to kind of like beat it into submission to do it. What they <laughs> you know what they want it to do and so um and i'm actually picking up like a new like app suite for podio from one of my friends um who's probably going to be marketing it here pretty soon i'm just going to test it out and it his seems a lot more streamlined and and simple than than mine and so um so podio for crm that works pretty well um and then for de deal analysis i use um i use i still use the bigger pockets calculators um, I think that they're good. Um, I helped develop the wholesaling one, so I hope it's good. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I use that, and then there's a um, houseflippingspreadsheet.com um, has a pretty good um, spreadsheet system that I still use for because um, they have a, kind of a report section, so I can put, plug in my deal, plug in all my numbers for rehab, and then in reports it'll have something that I can actually send to my private money lender, so they can see all the numbers on one page of what I'm looking to do. And if I send them that plus comps and, um, you know, plus tax records, they're usually like, th that's enough. You know, yeah. they're, they're like, I got all the numbers right here. This is sweet. So, um, so I really like that part of it. Yeah. And, um, so that's, that's been pretty huge. And I'm playing around with some, um, kind of automation on IFTTT app, which is if this, then that. And so it, it tries to automate some, 
little things that you would be doing. Like if it like it can automatically like search Craigslist for certain things and then throw it into a spreadsheet or throw it into a Word doc. So then you you don't have to go search Craigslist yourself. You can look just at your daily Word doc for whatever you're looking for. Um, just little things like that to try to. Um, I'm not. I'm not great at systems. I'll just admit that. Um, I have traction and I have some EOS kind of stuff sitting around here yeah. <laughs> that I need to implement. Yeah. Um, but it, it's definitely one of those things that I recognize I can be way, way better at. Um, yeah. So, th but those are my favorite tools that I have that I use regularly. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a little bit more of a general question. So how is the process of writing a book, uh, raising a family and running a full-time real estate business? Oh man, there were days. <laughs> it was it was definitely um, is pretty hairy. Um, yeah, I was trying to hit uh, a goal of like writing a thousand words a day um, mm -hmm. during the week, and I was also I think I was also blogging um, for Bigger Pockets main site, and obviously, like you said, running a business, having a family. Um, since it took like two years, this was like you know summertime would come, and my son's out of school. And, you know, uh, business generally suffers during that time because we're off um, playing and, and, yeah. and trying to make memories there. But um, I'd say that if I had to do it again, I would do it a lot more structured and I would do it a lot differently. Um, I just I didn't realize how, realize how daunting of a task it is because you can index like the whole book. You can kind of um, do like an outline of it. And then over the course of a year, you could be writing something and then you didn't realize that you were, you know, hit on the same topic like seven months ago because it's <laughs> been so, we're like so close to the project. Like, you know, you, you have, uh, I think it ended up at 90,000 words, but I think I wrote probably 110,000 for the whole thing. So, you know, 20,000 words get cut. And, um, and so you're so close to the project and it's, you know, I'd get sent to like edit, edits and you're like, well, I have to read the entire book to, you know, to, to get through these edits. And so, or you have to like A, B it on different screens. And um, it just, um, it was a lot tougher than I thought it was going to be. But it was very much worth it at the end when I get, you know, people who message me out of the blue and they're like, hey man, thank, you know, yeah. I, I got this and this and this from what you said and I'm out, you know, taking action on it. And that's, that's all I ever wanted was like, like, read it and go take freaking action. Like yeah. don't re read it 10 times and, and uh, never do anything, but you know, read it, get what you need from it and then go out and do it. Cause, um, that's huge. So it was definitely worth it. It was hard, but, but very worth it. That's good. That's great to hear. Um, so last little bonus question before we wrap things up. Um, so the introduction, I think page one, you talked about a, a flip that you went nine dumpsters on. Is that true? No, that's true. Everything is everything in there is true, which I, I tried to I try not to embellish too much, but um yeah. yeah. That was a hoarder house where um the the power was out and I remember like going through it. First time I went through it, I could only make it there like at seven o'clock in the fall, I think it was. And so I get there and I have like my cell phone flashlight because um I didn't have my flashlight in my car and I'm like you know, I get into the house and I like, and I knew it was bad, but um, I get into the house and I like climb onto this big pile of junk and I'm, and I'm bending over so far that like my back's like touching the ceiling and I'm kind of hunched there and um, 
and just thinking to my, it was my first experience with this type of house and just thinking to myself, like, how in the world am I going to do this? Like, I don't know if there's any structural issues because there's just so much stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it came time to, uh, basically we had, we had left the, the seller a few dumpsters to say, cause she was like, Hey, I want to, I want to try and clean out what I can. And I want to try to go through stuff. And this isn't, unfortunately, this isn't the first time that it's happened, but when it came to like closing and then we get there and nothing's been done, um, which is fine. We, we agreed to take the house as is. And, you know, we get there and she's had, you know, uh, kind of a partial nervous breakdown, um, just due to the hoarding situation. And she ended up signing over the entire contents of the house to us. And so, um, it was one of those things that was like, Oh, well now this is all of our stuff. You know, we've, and, and since then we've had, you know, hoarding people who have gone through and they've, got all their valuables and got everything that's important and then just left us all the trash, which is, mm. which is fine. That's, that's the nature of the business. But, um, in this case, I mean, there was like gun safes, there's guns, there's silver, there was dot, you know, there's money, there's cash. Um, and there was all kinds of just stuff in there that was worth money. And, and so for her, it was worth it to, you know, get healthy and move on rather than even try to dig through her own stuff for her own valuables. So it was it, very interesting. Yeah. No, that's, that's <laughs> a lot of dumpsters. Nine. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Um, uh, it, and like the longer you're in the business, the more you'll see, you know, stuff yeah. like that. So, <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much for your time today, and I really uh, enjoyed you being on the show today. Like I said, a uh, great book. I think it's uh, very well written. I love the actionable advice that's in the book, and you can, you know, you really get a good feeling to, you know, how, uh, you know, to be a successful, you know, fix and flipper, wholesaler, agent, and and how you can utilize, um, you know, multiple things on your tool belt to find success. Um, so if you could just, uh, tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and, uh, how they can purchase the book. Sure. Yeah. I've been pointing a lot of people these days to my bigger pockets profile. Um, it's, it has some of my so- social links on there and you can connect with me there. Um, they have a good messaging platform and stuff, but that's, uh, biggerpockets.com slash users slash Anson. And, uh, you'll, you'll land right on my member page and then, um, uh, where to find the book. So you could, you could find it. If you're already under Bigger Pockets, you can you can find it right there. Um, it's just biggerpockets.com/slash/great-deals. Um, Amazon has it. Uh, BarnesandNoble.com has it, and you should be able to find a physical copy in your local Barnes and Noble. Um, they usually carry one or two copies, and so uh, you should be able to find it there. But then there's a bunch of online ways to to find it if you can't find it locally. So great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it, man. And that wraps up our book club interview with author Anson Young, who wrote the book Finding and Funding Great Deals, The Hands-On Guide to Acquiring Real Estate in Any Market. On the back of the book, the second paragraph summarizes it perfectly. It says, this is not a magic pill that will turn you into a successful real estate investor overnight. Instead, this is a practical guide to use in each step of your real estate deal-finding journey Hard work required, but not included with the purchase of this book. I love that, and I think it summarizes this book perfectly. And make sure you grab your copy today. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook at The Book Club Interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host, and we'll see you next time.